Last time we spoke, in length, about the war in Europe, and how it related to the simultaneous war in China. The focus of these prelude episodes was to explain the vast history leading up to the Asia-Pacific War of 1941, and today's episode will strike right at the heart of it. Everything had been boiling up, and as we will soon learn, the United States and the Empire of Japan would set on a course towards war that could not be undone. Many key players will be at work during this episode, and their names will be rung throughout the Pacific War series. Now we will face the last prelude episode, and the most crucial one of the bunch. This week's episode will be Tensions in the Pacific. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week. I am your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can start, I also want to remind you, this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about the history of the Second World War? I would recommend their episodes on the Battle of Hong Kong or the German Raiders of the Pacific. Of course, they have a wider collection of episodes on many historical events, so go give them a look over on YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue helping us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com kingsandgenerals. And hell, if you're still hungry for some more history-related content, go over to my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over on YouTube where I have a few videos such as Nagumo's Dilemma during the Battle of Midway, or perhaps you're more into historic film reviews, I did one on the film The 800. Go give it a look, it would mean a lot to me. With war raging in both Europe and China, the United States found itself in quite a predicament. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt decided the United States was not going to tolerate any more aggression from Japan or Germany, in 1941, he finally drew a line to stop Japan, but these actions would surely risk war. So let's start this story around where we left off, mid-1940s. Great Britain and China stand alone against the might of their respective enemies, Nazi Germany, the Japanese Empire, and Italy. The war in China had been raging for almost four years now and was completely depleting the resources of the Japanese Empire. What made the situation worse for Japan was its almost complete dependency on other countries for its resources. After the Manchurian incident, the Japanese Prime Minister Fumimaro Kanoe wrote an essay in 1933 titled Seikai no Genjo o Kazo Seo, translates loosely to Reform the World's Status Quo, in it, Kanoi warned the Japanese population of the casual relationship between population pressure and war. Here is part of it. Quote, Unequal distribution of land and natural resources cause war, 
we cannot achieve real peace until we change the presently irrational international state of affairs. In order to do that, we must recognize two great principles. The first is freedom of economic exchange, that is to say, abolition of tariff barriers and the emancipation of raw materials. The other is freedom of immigration. Few possibilities exist for implementing these principles in the near future. However, as a result of our one million annual population increase, our national economic life is extremely burdened. We cannot wait for a rationalizing adjustment of the world system. Therefore, we have chosen to advance into Manchuria and Mongolia as our only means of survival. End of quote. Kanoi is basically legitimizing the actions of his empire in the face of national needs. The population was increasing, and its need for space, food, and other resources were such that the government, in his views, had to advance into Manchuria and Mongolia. If the need of Japan at the time was such that it had to invade the vast territory of Manchuria and Mongolia, well, now that Japan was stuck in an endless war with China, what sort of resource demands did it now have? The United States at this point provided 54.4% of the war materials necessary for Japan's weapons and supplies. This accounted for 76% of its aircraft, 59.7% of its scrap iron, 60.5% of its petroleum, and all of Japan's lubricating oil, machine tools, special steels, and high-test aircraft petrol. Now consider the situation for Japan. They had started a war in China, and despite most of their generals' assurances that it would take mere months, there was no end to the conflict to be found. Japan was stuck in China to remain in the fight. Well, they required war materials, which were almost all coming from the United States. What would happen if the United States turned the tap off? Indeed, even the Emperor of Japan, Hirohito, considered this on multiple occasions. Hirohito held a series of meetings with the Army Minister Hata and his Chief of Staff Kenin over the Japanese military preparations if the war in China never came to a decisive end. Much of these conversations went into the aspect of how to deal with the issue of other nations helping China, such as the trade going through Hong Kong. Hirohito began to raise his concerns over another matter when those in the cabinet wanted to ask Britain to stop trade through Hong Kong. He said, quote, Britain will probably reject our request for closing down the route for supplies to reach Chiang Kai-shek. We shall then be forced to occupy Hong Kong and might, ultimately, have to declare war. Should that happen, I am sure America will use the method of embargo. Don't you all agree? End of quote. Meanwhile, in China, the communist and nationalist guerrilla groups were constantly harassing Japanese troops and sabotaging them in occupied territories. The communists, in particular, were very capable at waging guerrilla warfare, 
as they have been doing so for the last two decades against the nationalists. To fight this guerrilla threat, Japan resorted to establishing puppet units of the new reorganized national government of the Republic of China, uniting all previous collaborationist states under Wang Jingwei. Yet despite these efforts, the Red Army managed to execute important military operations such as Peng Duwei's 100 Regiments Offensive in late August. This was a very controversial offensive. As mentioned, it was done under the overview of Peng Duwei, but it was also done against the wishes of Mao Zedong. Mao and Peng disagreed with how to confront the Japanese. Mao was concerned with any communist losses to the well-equipped Japanese. Mao was once quoted to say to Lin Biao, one of Mao's future ten great marshals, quote, Allowing Japan to occupy more territory is the only way to love your country. Otherwise, it would have become a country that loved Chiang Kai-shek. End of quote. Mao, much like Chiang Kai-shek, were ultra-focused on what happened directly after the war with Japan concluded, and both men sought to hoard their forces while performing actions that would hinder the others. Between 1939 to 1940, Japan launched more than 109 small campaigns involving 1,000 combatants each and 10 larger campaigns with 10,000 combatants each to try and wipe out the communist guerrillas in Hebei and Shandong province. While this was occurring, the Kuomintang party began to state publicly that the CCP were not contributing enough to the war effort and were only interested in expanding their power base. This drove some in the CCP to want to stage their own offensives to prove that they were helping with the war effort. By 1940, the growth of certain parts of the Red Army was becoming enormous. The 8th Root Army, commanded by Zhu De, had grown so much it now held over 105 regiments something like 200,000 to a possible 400,000 men strong. Peng ordered the mobilization of 20 regiments for a large offensive, but allegedly unbeknownst to him, Xue Du ordered more than 80 regiments to take part in the offensive. Sources vary greatly, but these forces allegedly succeeded in blowing up 213 bridges, 474 kilometers of railway, 1,502 kilometers of road, 22 tunnels, and 37 stations. Some sources state the Japanese suffered 20,900 casualties, with another 20,000 casualties for their collaborationist forces. This all occurred between August the 20th to September the 10th. After this major offensive, the Japanese forces in the North China area took on a new strategy called the Three Alls, meaning kill all, burn all, and destroy all. Such large offensives by the communist forces would never occur again. Peng Duei, after the war, would be said to have done by Mao, quote, The rogue Peng, along with Zhu De, launched the offensive to defeat Chongqing and Xi'an. He rejected my instructions and mobilized 105 regiments in an adventuristic impulse. How can Peng Duha 
make such a big move without consulting me. Our forces are completely revealed. The result will be terrible. End of quote. Needless to say, Mao would use this moment later to crush Peng. Regardless, the strategy of the three alls that came about brought new horror to the Chinese people, and Chiang Kai-shek proceeded to blame Mao Zedong, who in turn blamed Peng Dua for the Japanese harsher acts. From October to December, the Japanese would make large counterattacks to successfully regain control of railway lines and inflict heavy casualties on the CCP 8th Route Army in Hebei, Shandong, Shanxi, Xianxi, and Shahar. Now, at this point, Japan knew that prolonging the war would be dangerous if foreign powers decided to intervene. Japan needed to cut off completely the new enemy capital of Chongqing from foreign aid. Since the outbreak of World War II in Europe, Britain and the United States both began sending more and more war materials, something like 10,000 tons of it a month, by sea to places like Hong Kong and over the railway connecting French Indochina to Yunnan and Guangxi. Not only were the United States and Britain doing this, the longtime rival to Japan, the Soviets, were also sending aid through the old Silk Road. The Soviets alone sent $250 million worth of weapons, 900 aircraft, 82 tanks, 1,500 advisors, and 2,000 Air Force members. The Japanese, as I mentioned in previous episodes, began what I like to call a process of stopping the leaks of all these points of entry for war materials. By 1940 to 1941, the Japanese occupied most ports and surrounded the British possessions within China. One of the last remaining leaks was that of French Indochina. Yet the war in Europe had caused a stir in French Indochina. Back in June, with the fall of France, Tokyo realized the French were in no position to defend their holdings in Asia. France was in a curious position. On June the 22nd, France had signed an armistice with Germany. On July the 10th, the French parliament voted full powers to Marshal Philippe Pétain, forming the Third Republic. Now, despite most of France being occupied by Germany, the French colonies remained under the direction of Pétain's Vichy government. On July the 19th, Japan took full advantage of the chaos. They sent an ultimatum to the governor-general of French Indochina, Georges Catrou, demanding the closure of all supply routes to China and the admission of a 40-man Japanese inspection team to make sure of it. In truth, the Japanese were actually performing a quasi-Trojan horse operation, which they went as far as to notify the German government of beforehand. Georges Patrou reluctantly acquiesced to the demands of the French government, who was in no way prepared to defend the colony. Then on June the 22nd, Japan issued a, another demand to be allowed naval basing rights at Guangzhouan and the total closure of the Chinese border by July the 7th. This was followed up by more demands on July the 3rd, the right to use air bases and transit combat troops through French Indochina. During all of this, Georges Catroux was sacked and replaced by Admiral Jean Ducou, who adamantly wanted the French government to refuse all the demands. 
Doku took up command of 32,000 troops, plus 17,000 auxiliaries, who were all pretty ill-equipped. Then on August the 30th, the Japanese government drafted a proposal to France, whereby Japanese forces would be allowed to be stationed and could transit through French Indochina, only as long as the war continued with China. The French government looked to the Germans for support to moderate its allies' demands. The Germans responded by doing nothing at all. The French then tried to go to the Americans and British for help, but to no avail. During this process, Hirohito was briefed many times on the situation. Army Minister Hideki Tojo and the Chiefs of Staff reported to him their plans for securing bases in French Indochina. Hirohito agreed to authorize their plans because he thought that acquiring bases and stationing troops in French Indochina would contribute to toppling the Chongqing regime and would thus end the China War. Another reason he authorized all of this was because he had been briefed many times on the Nan Shinran Plan, the advance southward policy that envisioned taking the resource-rich territories in the South Asia-Pacific. But his number one concern was to prevent war with the United States. Thus he summoned all of his chiefs of staff on July the 29th to the palace. He then proceeded to question his chief of staff of the IGN, Prince Fushimi Hiroyasu, about the prospects for war with the United States. Fushimi replied, quote, Victory would be difficult in a protracted war. And unless we complete our domestic preparations, particularly the preparation of our material resources, I do not think we should lightly start war, even if there is a good opportunity to do so. Hirohito then asked the general, quote, Could Japan obtain a victory in a naval battle with the United States as we once did in the Battle of the Japan Sea? I heard that the United States will ban exports of oil and scrap iron. We can probably obtain oil from other sources, but don't you think we have a problem with scrap iron? Hirohito followed this up by turning onto the Soviet Union and Germany, stating, quote, If a Japan-Soviet non-aggression treaty is made and we advance to the south, the Navy will become the main actor. Has the army given thought to reducing the size of its forces in that case? How do you assess the future national power of Germany? Both Germany and the Soviet Union are untrustworthy countries. Don't you think there will be a problem if one of them betrays us and takes advantage of our exhaustion, fighting the United States? It seems as though you people are thinking of implementing this plan by force because there is a good opportunity at this moment for resolving the southern problem, even though some dangers are involved. What does a good opportunity even mean? To this question, Sawada replied, Well, for example, if a German landing in England commences, in that case, wouldn't the United States move to aid Britain? And then Hirohito concluded, Well, I've heard enough. I take it, in short, that you people are trying to resolve the southern problem by availing yourselves of today's good opportunities. End of quote. 
So if you've been following this podcast from the beginning, the reason I go so much into these moments with Hirohito is to showcase how truly involved he was in the decision-making process. For the longest time, the narrative remained that Hirohito was something of a powerless hostage, with whom the military was doing everything behind the scenes, probably without him being even aware. But as you can see from the quote I gave, he was very, very knowledgeable about the ongoing military plans, and he often made decisions based off them. On September the 6th, an infantry battalion of the Japanese 22nd Army, based in Nanning, violated the Indo-Chinese border near the French fort at Dongdang. Officers of this army were attempting something similar to the Mukden incident of 1931. They were trying to force their superiors to adopt a more aggressive policy. Following this incident, the coup cut off negotiations and prepared to fight. By September the 18th, Japan set yet another ultimatum to the French, warning them that Japanese troops would enter French Indochina regardless of any French agreement at 10 p.m. on September the 22nd. The coup demanded they reduce the number of Japanese troops that would be stationed in French Indochina, and they negotiated it to be a force of 6,000. Everything was going according to plan until 9 p.m. on September the 22nd, when members of the 22nd Army, the same guys who pushed the envelope in Dongdang, did not wait for the planned movement of troops and instead went straight in. Fire was exchanged over the border posts. French forces at Langsong were quickly surrounded by Japanese armored units and forced to surrender by September the 25th, but not before they tossed almost all of their artillery pieces in the river so the Japanese could not have them. The French government began screaming about the breach of the agreement on September the 23rd, but there was nothing much to be done. Japanese aircraft launched from aircraft carriers hit French positions along the coast as infantry and armored units landed in places like Dong Tak. By the evening of September the 26th, the fighting died down as the Japanese were taking Hanoi. The invasion was a huge success, but it was against Tokyo's wishes. Some of their forces had acted before they were supposed to, breaking the agreement Japan had with France. Regardless, now Japan was able to station 40,000 troops in northern Indochina. The leak had been closed. In response, the British opened up the Burma Road in October, connecting the Burmese city of Lijiao with the capital of Yunnan and Kunming. Thus Japan went through this entire venture just to be thwarted by Britain, and more trouble was to come. Japan had made a series of actions at this point that raised tensions with the global powers. They had initiated a war in China, withdrew from the League of Nations, joined in an alliance with Nazi Germany and Italy, and now they had marched into French Indochina. The United States was outraged by the actions of Japan and had had enough, so they placed an embargo on scrap metal shipments to Japan and closed off the Panama Canal to them. Now remember, 74.1% of Japan's scrap iron came from the United States at this point. Alongside this, the United States doubled the amount of aid delivered to Chiang Kai-shek, 
and ordered the evacuation of all Americans in the Far East. In early 1941, Japan would raise the stakes by occupying more areas in southern Indochina. Now Japan was in distance of threatening British-held Malaya, North Borneo, and Brunei. So I'd like to take another second here to bring up another major factor about Hirohito, and that was his rivalry with his siblings. I mentioned in a previous episode, Hirohito had a brother named Chichibu, who was often opposed to Hirohito's decisions. Hirohito had secret reports made on the activities of his brother. When the February 26th coup attempt of 1936 was made, Hirohito legitimately thought the rebels were enlisting his brother, Chichibu, in a forcing him to abdicate. Hirohito met with his brother during the uprising and demanded he distance himself from the rebels and any young officers associated with the Kodaha faction. Well, at this point in time, Chichibu became seriously ill with tuberculosis, and his retirement from active public life meant that Hirohito's other brother, Prince Takamatsu, now stood to become regent in an emergency. This meant that Takamatsu was required to read more official documents and had to give his views and advice on matters to Hirohito, and more often than not, he saw and acted the same way Chichibu did. Hirohito had questioned the tripartite pact quite often and was not convinced it was the most viable option. Takamatsu, like Chichibu, thought it was. In fact, a lot of the Japanese leadership thought the alliance with Germany and Italy would help Japan. One such was Koichi Kido, the Lord Keeper of the Privy Seal, and one of Hirohito's closest advisors. He thought of it, quote, The Emperor had to adopt a balance of power policy in order to avoid becoming isolated and, at the same time, not be drawn into the European war. There was no way to negotiate with the United States without having the power of the alliance in the background. The explanations of Kanoi and Matsuoka persuaded us. We didn't like it, but couldn't help signing it. End of quote. Now, as we've already seen, Britain's response to the signing of the Tripartite Pact and the invasion of North Indochina was to open up the Burma Road. Alongside everything, the United States did what we had mentioned, the embargoes, but President Roosevelt also began to attend some military meetings in which the dog plan was agreed upon. This plan's premises was that Germany was to be the main enemy, and that henceforth, the US would follow a defeat Germany first strategy, focusing on the European front and aid to Britain. If war should come in the Pacific, the United States would initially wage a defensive campaign, but not turn its full weight against Japan until Germany was done with. Well, 1941 would certainly change everything for just about everyone. Let's start with one of the biggest events, Operation Barbarossa, Germany's invasion of the Soviet Union, which kicked off in late June of 1941. This sent shockwaves through the entire world, let alone for the Soviets who faced oblivion. For those in Japan, this marked the frantic formation of a plan called Kantoquen, 
the Kwantan Army Special Maneuvers. It was an operational plan created by the IGA General Staff for the invasion and occupation of the Soviet Far East. The Japanese leaders were quite divided at this point. For example, Prime Minister Fumimaro Kanoe considered the Operation Barbarossa to be the great second betrayal of Japan, the first being when Germany unveiled the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact with the Soviet Union. Kanoe advised leaving the Tripartite Pact over the issue, while Foreign Minister Yatsuke Matsuoka urged the immediate abandonment of the neutrality pact Japan had with the Soviet Union and to launch a full-scale invasion alongside their German ally. Matsuoka's views were supported by the Kwangtung Army and many IGA general staff. As you can see, we have found ourselves back at the old Hoko Shinran strategy. Needless to say, Hirohito was deeply consumed by the war planning and decisions needed to be made at this time. The historian Yamada Akira states of this period that Hirohito routinely received drafts of developing war plans and full explanations of operations, accompanied by detailed maps, informing him why an operation should be mounted and the units that would be carrying it out. Even telegrams from the front lines would go directly to the royal palace. Well, the plan against the Soviet Union, by some estimates, would have included 22 divisions with over 850,000 men, supported by 800,000 tons of shipping. This scramble to help Hitler's forces would have taken half of Japan's armored units and two-thirds of its air force. During all of this, the Soviets would have something like 23 divisions in the Far East, up to 650,000 men, 5,400 tanks, 3,000 aircraft, 57,000 motorized vehicles, 15,000 artillery pieces, and 95,000 horses. Not a cakewalk, to be sure. For all of those listening who play Hearts of Iron 4 or are just enthusiasts about what-if scenarios, lest it be known, if Japan threw the hypothetical kitchen sink at the Soviet Union at this time, it would not have gone well for them. Many military historians who I cannot even carry water for have done the math on this one, and the results are strikingly bad for Japan. I remember reading one guy who even said even if Japan went through with it, the Soviet Union would have saw little change. The famous Siberian Corps, for example, that comes out of the Far East to bash Hitler in 1942, right when Hitler's forces are stuck outside Moscow? Well, even if they did not come when they did, Hitler was not going to take Moscow, this guy argued. All Japan would have done was set the war back perhaps a year or two tops. But anyways, we need to carry on. By the way, for those who are really interested in this question, another YouTuber named Alternate History Hub actually covered this exact scenario. And it's a pretty interesting episode to say the least. It's worth a look. Well, while those in Japan planned a hypothetical invasion of the Soviet Union, there were others who still held onto the Nanshinron strategy. Their arguments for continuing the southern strategy were based on realism, 
the deadlocked China War, for example. Japan was literally tied down in China. It had been for four years and five months at this point. The war in China had expanded from 17 divisions of 250,000 men in July of 1937 to 51 divisions of over 2.1 million men by December of 1941. Before anything at all could occur, Japan needed to solve the China War. Decisions had to be made, so 10 days after Operation Barbarossa kicked off, Kanoi summoned an imperial conference. The official document of that imperial conference that would be approved by Hirohito was called Outline of the Empire's National Policies in View of the Changing Situation. They debated the situation Japan faced in regards to the Soviets, Britain, and the United States. For the first time, a policy statement used the expression, War with Britain and the United States. Here is two main passages of that said document. Quote, Depending on appropriate changes in the situation, we will settle the northern question, that is, to attack the Soviet Union, as well in order to achieve the above objectives. Preparations for war with Great Britain and the United States will be made, and our empire will not be deterred by the possibility of being involved in a war with Great Britain and the United States. If the German-Soviet war should develop to the advantage of our empire, then we will, by resorting to armed force, settle the northern question and assure the security of our northern borders. But if the United States should enter the European war, then our empire will act in accordance with the tripartite pact. However, we will decide independently as to the time and method of resorting to force. End of quote. When all was said and done, the document neither approved nor ruled out the possibility of Japanese intervention in the German-Soviet war. All it truly did was mobilize forces in case they would be required, and it should be noted, it was not to help the Germans but instead to stop the Soviets from invading Manchuria. The Japanese now believed the Soviets were preoccupied with the West and decided it was the opportune moment for the Southern strategy finally. Thus, Japan invaded Southern French Indochina on July the 29th of 1941 with over 140,000 troops. This move was intended to get the necessary forces in place in order for the future invasion of the Dutch East Indies and British Malaya. But this incursion also provoked the United States. President Roosevelt would unleash even more powerful economic sanctions as a response. While Japan invaded, Roosevelt ordered the defenses in the Philippines to be strengthened on July the 26th promising to send 272 B-17 heavy-range bombers and 130 P-40s to them. He then appointed the retired Army Chief of Staff, General Douglas MacArthur, to command all U.S. forces in the Far East. 
On the same day, Roosevelt signed an executive order freezing all Japanese assets in the United States, thereby bringing, quote, all financial and import and export transactions in which Japanese interests are involved under the control of the government. End of quote. This was followed up by a total embargo on oil and gasoline export to Japan on August the 1st. Boom. 80% of Japan's oil came from the United States. This was a cataclysm. Now some of you might be thinking to yourself, Hey, if Japan hated the United States so much, why didn't they find someone else to play ball with? Well, they tried. Hell, in 1940, they asked to purchase 3.15 million barrels of oil from the Dutch East Indies, but the Dutch were unwilling to hand over such an amount. Could have something to do with not feeding those who might invade you. The embargoes shocked leadership in Japan, including Hirohito, Five days prior to this, on July the 21st, the Naval Chief of Staff, Admiral Nagano, had suggested war with the United States prior to the oil embargoes. He said, quote, We would have a chance of achieving victory, but that probability would decrease as time passed and became disadvantageous to the Empire. If we occupy the Philippines, it will be easier for our Navy to carry on the war. We can then manage the defense of the South Pacific fairly well. End of quote. At the time he said this, the Navy was very divided on the idea of war with the United States. In fact, Hirohito himself understood the Navy's preparations were by no means sufficient to face the United States. After the embargo, things changed quite dramatically. On July the 30th, Hirohito officially blocked the possibility of war with the Soviet Union and began to show his dissatisfaction with the current situation during an imperial meeting, stating, quote, Prince Fushimi said that he would avoid war with Britain and the United States. Have you changed that? This was stated towards Nagano, who replied, I have not changed the principle, but if we are going to fight, then the sooner we do so, the better, because our supplies are gradually dwindling away. Hirohito replied, Do you have any plans for fighting a protracted war? Nagano responded that there was no way to be sure of victory in a long war. What eventually came about during these heated meetings is quite interesting. The army, who still wanted to invade the Soviets, agreed to go along with the southern strategy instead. It was expected that Germany would defeat the Soviet Union rather quickly, and thus the army gave its support to the southern strategy, so that a quick war would be fought with the United States, and, quote, Let's finish off down south before beginning operations up north in the spring of 1942. End of quote. So the army assumed they would give a knockout blow to the United States and Britain and then turn right around and take down the remaining Soviets in the Far East after Hitler had crippled them. That was quite a pipe dream. Well, during this time of crisis, 
Prime Minister Kanoi sought to find some means of peacefully securing oil. In late July, Britain began to place economic restrictions on Japan because she was now an ally of Germany, to stress them even more. Then, when Kanoi tried to negotiate with the Netherlands Indies for oil purchases on July the 28th, the Dutch froze all Japanese assets, mirroring the stance of the U.S. Boom. Japan was now officially forced to draw down to its reserves of oil and other stockpiled war materials. What was Japan to do now to try and stop a war from occurring? Well, Kanoi the entire time was pushed by Hirohito to make all possible efforts at resolving these tensions peacefully. Thus, in the spring of 1941, he tried to negotiate with the United States. The Japanese ambassador to the United States, Namura Kachisubaro, and the U.S. Secretary of State, Cordell Hull, would hold many secret conversations. The meetings found no solution because of three major issues. Number one, Japan would not break with the tripartite pact. Number two, Japan wanted economic control and responsibility for Southeast Asia as envisioned by the Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere. And number three, Japan refused to leave mainland China. Kanoi eventually would step down in disgrace after his failure to find a peaceful solution. Now, speaking of China, the war is still raging on in 1941, and a lot of developments have occurred. As mentioned, the United States began to really amp up its support for Chiang Kai-shek in 1941 with the Lend-Lease Act. A major component of this was sending a man named Claire Lee Chenault, who would command the first American volunteer group, later nicknamed the Flying Tigers. These were American pilots flying P-40s against the Japanese. I won't go into this now, because it will spoil a future episode in which yours truly happens to be the guy who wrote the episode. On the Flying Tigers, that is. Trust me, it'll be worth the wait. It was a really good one. Needless to say, though, their involvement was paramount to the war effort, and interestingly enough, Mr. Chenault would also pay a very important role in advising Chiang Kai-shek. Also in 1941, the Nationalists and the Communists would suddenly break into hostilities again. In January of 1941, the new Fourth Army incident occurred, and it's a controversial subject to say the least. What is so controversial about it is that both sides say the other attacked them first, but I will attempt to explain it. In September of 1940, the new Fourth Army under Su Yu attacked nationalist troops in Jiangxi province. Obviously, Chiang Kai-shek saw this as a betrayal and sought to have the new Fourth Army disbanded. In December of 1940, Chiang Kai-shek ordered the communist Eight Root Army and the new Fourth Army to withdraw from Anhui and Jiangsu. The Communist Party responded by only agreeing to move the new 4th Army into southern Anhui. By January the 4th, a 9,000-strong force of the new 4th Army was moving as planned, when they noticed they were being surrounded by a force of 80,000 men, all nationalist forces, commanded by General Xiangguang Yusheng at Maolin, Anhui province. 
They were attacked by said force and tried to surrender, but were unable to. Only 2,000 communists were able to break out and escape. On January the 17th, Chiang Kai-shek ordered the disbanding of the new 4th Army, and instead the communists reorganized it with Chen Yi as the new commander and moved its HQ to Jiangsu alongside the 8th Route Army. Both the KMT and the CCP claimed the other had attacked first, and criticized the other for creating internal strife while they were supposed to be united against the Japanese. I am not going to even try to give my two cents on who betrayed who, but the end result was the end of the second front. No further cooperation would be had. On top of all of this, many battles were going on in China. Japan had commenced with two new operations against South Henan and Western Hubei, as well as a large offensive against the city of Shanghao. The Chinese would successfully flank and defeat the Japanese offensives by late March of 1941, inflicting heavy casualties upon them and forcing them to retreat, leaving behind substantial amounts of military equipment and supplies. On May the 7th, General Tada Haiyao launched a full offensive against the mountainous region of South Shangxi, and he managed to break through defensive lines in Mangxian, Jiuan, Hongpi, and Wangjian, and encircled the NRA forces. It's notable to mention the Eight Ruth Army at this point refused to assist the encircled NRA, and yes, this was a direct retribution for the new Fourth Army incident we had mentioned before. Thus, the NRA forces were destroyed, and this moment was remembered as one of the worst defeats for the entire war in China. Another nation that honestly is not talked about all that often when it comes to the Second Sino-Japanese War, or the Pacific War for that matter, is that of the Kingdom of Thailand. Much like Japan, Thailand saw a rise in ultra-nationalism and the establishment of a dictatorship under Plek Fibun. Fibun was inspired by the Italian fascist Benito Mussolini and made a similar campaign to promote Thai nationalism. Alongside the consolidation of his power, the Thai leadership watched the weakness of French Indochina unfold in the 1940s, similar to the Japanese. Thailand had some disputed territory with French Indochina, such as the provinces of Batambang, Palin, Siem Reap, Pante, Manchi, Oda Manchi, Pre Vihi, Xiang Na Boli, and parts of Long Pre Bang. So, you know, not too many places, just a few places. All of these disputes had boiled over the last century, and after the fall of France to Nazi Germany, suddenly there was an influx of border skirmishes between Thailand and French Indochina. Hmm, go figure. Well, I think you know where this is going. So this led to what is called the Franco-Thai War, in which Phi Bun commanded the Thai forces against France himself. The war started with a series of aerial bombing runs over the French Indochinese cities of Vietian, Phnom Penh, Sisophan, and Batambang, and then a series of offensives on Laos and Cambodia in early January. Fibun commanded a force of 60,000 who were relatively well equipped. Laos was quickly overrun, but French resistance in Cambodia was quite fierce, 
and the French Navy had a major victory at the Battle of Shang on January the 17th. The situation began to deteriorate for the Thais, and the French victory was looking apparent. Then the Japanese forced the French Indochinese government to sign an armistice and cede the disputed territories. This was a huge personal victory for Fibon. After all, he was not just the dictator, he personally led the forces during this quasi-successful war. However, it was really the Japanese who won in the end, because this moment showcased their authority in Indochina, and the real threat they posed to Thailand if the Thais did not fall in line with them. Fearing an invasion of Thailand from Japan, Fibun from this point onwards would play both the Japanese and the Allies, trying to get the best guarantee for his nation. So now I think it's about time to get down to the end of the marathon and explain more in detail how we get the Pacific War in 1941. Let's start with something I have been rather ambiguous about, that being the Southern Strategy or also known as Nanshinran. So I explained the general idea of Hoku Shinran, the old northern strategy, which was in effect a pipe dream of the IJA. The southern strategy had been around for a long time and was deeply impacted by the actions of World War I. Nanshinran became the official policy as of 1935, but the plans were always ongoing. When Japan began to face embargoes, the southern plans were directed along the lines of securing the resources necessary to keep the China War going. Because let's remember, the war in China was the crux of the empire since 1937. Thus, Japanese planners looked for sources of resources that could be obtained to keep the empire going. They looked south especially towards Brunei for oil and Malaya for rubber and tin. When the Dutch East Indies followed the U.S. in embargoing Japan, the war planners knew they might have to seize the territory by force. However, seizing this region would almost certainly bring the United States into war with Japan. The U.S. oil embargo had reduced Japan to only two options. Option number one, seize Southeast Asia before stockpiles of war materials were depleted. Or option number two, submit to American demands. As we mentioned before, the secret conversations between Ambassador Nomura and Cordell Hull had failed. Japan could not simply give up its war against China. It was self-defeating. So the military now seriously looked at the southern strategy. They needed to take the Dutch East Indies and territories held by Britain but to do this would absolutely draw the U.S. into war with Japan. And they could stage such attacks from the Philippines, which was currently upping its military capabilities under Douglas MacArthur. In fact, most in the Japanese military acknowledged that the U.S. was building up its capabilities, and soon would overpass the Japanese to a point they could not hope to even remotely match. Alongside this, the U.S., Britain, and the Netherlands were increasingly coordinating together, and this was very apparent to Japanese commanders. I would like to read to you some meeting notes between Admiral Takagi and the Imperial Palace Representative and Chief Secretary Kido, the number one advisor to Hirohito, as well as Matsudara Yasumasa, 
This conversation took place August the 8th of 1941, and it is as follows, quote, Matsudara speaking. The other day, I got the impression from the briefing that the chief of the naval general staff, Admiral Nagano Osami, gave to the emperor that it is now too late to avoid war with the United States, even though it will be a most bloody war. Admiral Takagi speaking? Absolutely not. I do not know what Nagano said, but I can't imagine him reporting that. In my view, if Japan lets time pass while under pressure from lack of materials, such as the oil embargo, we will be giving up without a fight. If we make our attack now, the war is militarily calculable and not hopeless. But if we facilitate, the situation will become increasingly disadvantageous for us. Matsudara responds, Prince Takematsu said the same thing. End of quote. I feel this conversation kind of encapsulates the thought process going around by all. Everyone knew war with the United States was a terrible risk, but to wait longer allowed the United States to simply get too strong, and Japan would have no future controls over its actions. Takagi and the other notable military leaders blamed Japan's predicament on the oil embargo and the deadlock of Japan-US negotiations. This position was shared by Hirohito, who understands statistical data. Let's not forget, he was a scientist. He studied marine biology and spent a large part of his life in his personal laboratory. He even went on to publish many scientific publications. His contributions to science include the description of several species of hydrozoa. And what I'm trying to get at here is that Hirohito very much understood the technical terms presented to him in regards to materials necessary for the empire and war. Hirohito backed Takagi and the Navy, but in the words of his advisor, Kido, he, quote, wanted more assurance of victory before he was willing to take the nation into war. End of quote. Every day that went by saw Japan growing weaker and the United States growing stronger, simply as a result of the depleting oil reserves. What is the IGN without oil, after all? So a Laison conference was held on September the 3rd, and they officially adopted a short document stating, quote, The Empire, for its existence and self-defense, shall complete war preparation by about the later part of October, with the resolve not to hesitate to go to war with the United States, Britain, and the Netherlands. In tandem with this decision, the Empire shall endeavor to achieve its demands vis-a-vis -vis the United States and Britain through diplomatic means. In the event there is no prospect for achieving our demands, by about early October, we shall immediately decide to initiate war with the United States, Britain, and the Netherlands. End of quote. So there we have the official stance made in September of 1941. The dice were being cast, so to speak. This document was brought to Hirohito at 5 p.m. on September the 5th. 
The moment had arrived for Hirohito to make the most important decision of his entire life. He was being asked to break Japan free of its own deadlocked foreign policy by resorting to a war strategy against a vastly superior adversary, one in which Japan could not possibly hope to defeat militarily. Now let's not forget, it's been six weeks since Germany invaded the Soviet Union, and they were far from producing a decisive victory. The Japanese ambassador to Britain, Shigemitsu Mamoru, had just returned and he privately spoke to Hirohito, telling him that Japan could maintain its great power status and exert influence in post-war policies, even if it stayed out of the European war. All Hirohito needed to do, in his words, were, quote, re-examine current policy, end of quote. Well now, Hirohito clearly had some options at this point. He could slow the momentum to a new war by choosing to concentrate on the one already in progress. He could continue to throw his forces that were already in China and the Manchurian Soviet border into the war with China. Perhaps at the same time he could profit commercially from a war in Europe by staying out of it. And if he did this, this meant halting the southern expansion strategy and withdrawing troops from Southeast Asia, thereby losing the chance to seize the Dutch East Indies. The day before Hirohito was to ratify the September 3rd document, Hirohito angrily scolded one of his commanders, Sugiyama, and the passage about this scolding is given to us by Takagi. It's quite interesting. It is as follows, quote, Starting with Hirohito, in the event we must finally open hostilities, will our operations have a probability of victory? Sugiyama? Yes, they will. Hirohito? At the time of the China incident, the army told me that we could achieve peace immediately after dealing them one blow with three divisions. Sugiyama, you were army minister at the time. Sugiyama? China is a vast area with many ways in and many ways out, and we met unexpectedly big difficulties. Hirohito? Didn't I caution you each time about those matters? Sugiyama, are you lying to me? Nagano speaking. If your majesty will grant me permission, I would like to make a statement. Hirohito? Go ahead. Nagano. There is no 100% probability of victory for the troops stationed there. Sun Tzu says that in war between states of similar strength, it is very difficult to calculate victory. Assume, however, there is a sick person, and we leave him alone. He will definitely die. But if the doctor's diagnosis offers a 70% chance of survival, provided the patient is operated on, then don't you think one must try surgery? And if, after the surgery, the patient dies, one must say that it was meant to be. This is indeed the situation we face today. If we waste time, let the days pass, and are forced to fight after, 
it is too late to fight, then we won't be able to do a thing about it. Hirohito? All right, I understand. Hirohito seems to be in a better mood, and now Kanoi says, Shall I make the changes in tomorrow's agenda? How would you like me to go about it? Hirohito? There is no need to change anything. End of quote. The next day, on September the 6th, during the Imperial Conference, Sugiyama made the case for war. He stated, if the southern operations achieved a great victory, it would, quote, produce a great transformation in American public opinion. Therefore, a favorable conclusion to the war is not necessarily beyond hope. In any case, we will have to occupy strategic areas in the South and establish strategic superiority. Concurrently, we must develop the rich resources of the southern area and utilize the economic power of the East Asian continent in order to establish a durable, self-sufficient economic position. Moreover, we shall work together with Germany and Italy to break up the unity of the United States and Britain. An unbeatable situation would see us link up Europe and Asia, guiding the situation to our advantage. In this way, we might see a hope of a coming out of the war, at least even with the United States. End of quote. Hirohito waited for the end of the presentations and discussions before giving his sanctions. They were to complete preparations for war against the United States, Britain, and the Netherlands in the last 10 days of October, if negotiations failed. He then presided to question those in the room, stating, quote, What do you two chiefs of staff think? Neither of you have said a word. Hirohito then proceeds to take out a piece of paper from his pocket, reading the famous Tanka statement made by Emperor Meiji. Across the four seas, all are brothers. In such a world, why do the waves rage and the winds roar? End of quote. This tanka was a poem Meiji wrote at the beginning of the Russo-Japanese War, expressing his worries about the possible outcome. Thus, you can imagine what Hirohito is hinting at. All those in the meeting concluded they would prepare, but stated their intentions were to give priority to diplomacy. For the next few days, multiple meetings were held, such as on September the 9th, when Sugiyama gave Hirohito a detailed report on the planned southern advance operation. Hirohito asked, what would happen if pressure came from the north? And Sugiyama answered, quote, Once we have begun the southern operation, we cannot pay attention to anything else. We have to keep pushing forward until we achieve our objectives. Your Majesty, we need your understanding. If something happens in the north, we will transfer troops up from China, but we must not stop the southern operation halfway. Hirohito? Well, then I am relieved, 
but don't you think it will be very hard to transfer troops from China? Sugiyama? Yes, because our strength in China will be weakened. We will have to contract our battlefronts and also do other things. These matters are considered in the annual operations plan just coming up. Under any circumstances, you don't have to worry about China. The next day, Sugiyama briefed Hirohito again and was asked, quote, You may go ahead and mobilize, but if the Kanoi Roosevelt talks go well, you'll stop, won't you? Sugiyama? Indeed, Your Majesty, we will. Hirohito? I will ask you one more time, is there any possibility that the North, the Soviet Union, may move against us while we are engaged in the South? Sugiyama? I cannot say that will absolutely not occur. However, because of the season, it is inconceivable that large forces will be able to attack us. End of quote. Well, by October the 14th, no headway had been made in negotiations with the United States. Kanoi held his last cabinet meeting, this time with Army Minister Hideki Tojo, who took over the course of it, doing most of the talking. Here is part of what he said, quote, For the past six months, ever since April, the foreign minister has made painstaking efforts to adjust relations with the United States. Although I respect him for that, we remain deadlocked. Our decision was to start the war if by early October we cannot thoroughly achieve our demands through negotiations. Today is the 14th. We are mobilizing hundreds of thousands of soldiers. Others are being moved from China and Manchuria, and we have reconditioned 2 million tons of ships, causing difficulties for many people. As I speak, ships are en route to their destinations. I would not mind stopping them, and indeed would have to stop them if there was a way for a diplomatic breakthrough. The heart of the matter is the withdrawal if we yield to America's demands. It will destroy the fruits of the China incident. Manchukuo will be endangered, and our control of Korea undermined. End of quote. Well, Kanoi had had it. Two days later, on October the 16th, he resigned. Kanoi believed that the emperor supported the arguments made by Tojo, Sugiyama, and Nagano, that to go on to war. One of Kanoi's last official actions as Prime Minister was to join Tojo in recommending Prince Higa Shikuni to succeed him. Hirohito refused this, as he did not want the future Prime Minister to have any links to the Imperial House. Instead, he chose none other than Hideki Tojo to form a new cabinet. One of our key players in the Pacific War had just emerged on the chessboard, so to speak. Tojo went to work immediately, and on November the 8th, Hirohito received detailed information about the plan to strike Pearl Harbor. On the 15th, 
he was shown the full war plan in all of its details. A surprise attack on Pearl Harbor would be followed simultaneously by an invasion of Southeast Asia and allied holdings in the Pacific, such as the Philippines. Hirohito officially agreed to the war plan on November the 5th and sanctioned the official deadline for terminating the Washington diplomatic negotiations at midnight of December the 1st. The negotiations were to go forward on the basis of two proposals, A and B, which would be offered in secession. Now I want to take a minute to introduce another key player. We have spoken about Hirohito and Tojo, but what of the mastermind behind Pearl Harbor? The commander of the Imperial Japanese Combined Fleet, Admiral Aisaroko Yamamoto, I won't go too much into details about this man, as there will be future episodes on him. Yours truly had written already some. Those episodes will touch upon his early life, his rise in the Navy, and how he devised the war plans. But what I do want to touch upon here is his involvement in the Pearl Harbor attack planning, and the road to war, so to speak. He visited Kanoi before the Prime Minister stepped down and offered advice about the situation. At that time, Kanoi still hoped for a diplomatic breakthrough with the United States, and Yamamoto said, quote, If the talk at sea should break down, don't assume a defiant attitude. Depart, leaving everything vague, and the fleet will take action while you are en route home. End of quote. Why did he state this? Well, he had been for a long time struggling with the military brass to adopt his plans for the ultimate surprise attack in human history. Hell, to get the government to agree to the attack on Pearl Harbor, Yamamoto and the rest of the combined fleet staff threatened to resign. Yamamoto was an avid gambler, when he first brought up the theoretical plan, he was met with almost universal opposition. Not to mention the need to overcome some major technological obstacles, such as how to get torpedoes to hit ships in low-depth harbor waters. Something of interest happened, though, in 1940 that did swing some votes his way. A lesser-known event called the Battle of Taranto which occurred on the night of November the 11th, when the British naval forces launched the first all-aircraft, ship-to-ship naval attack in history against the Regia Marina at anchor in the harbor of Taranto. They launched 21 ferry swordfish torpedo bombers. We are talking about biplanes, which were held up by literal wires for this operation. So on the night of November the 11th, the HMS Illustrious launched these swordfish, and the results were shocking, to say the least. The Regia Marina suffered significant losses. The battleship Comte de Cavour had a 39 by 26 foot hole in its hull. 27 of her crew were killed, with 100 wounded. 
She fell to the bottom of the shallow water with only her superstructure and main armaments remaining above the water. She would never see full service again. Battleship Cayo Dulio had a 36 by 23 foot hole, but was saved before running aground. Battleship Letorio had been hit by three torpedoes, leading to considerable flooding, and the ship's bows were literally submerged by next morning. 32 of her crew died, with many wounded. The heavy cruiser Trento was damaged by an unexploded bomb that tore a hole in one of her fuel tanks, taking over two months to repair. Destroyers Labisio and Pizino, both hit by unexploded bombs, required minor repairs but each taking a month. It took over four months to repair the Littorio, seven months for the Durio, with the Comte de Cavaux never seeing completion of its repairs. Two Italian aircrafts were destroyed on the ground. The seaplane hangars, oil depots, and harbor were severely damaged. An estimated 15,000 rounds fired from some shore batteries and warships had landed in the very city of Taranto, which really laid in shambles. It was devastating. All of this at the cost of two ferry swordfish biplanes and four casualties for the British. Boom. The Italian fleet had lost half of its capital ships in a single night. Now, prior to this attack on Taranto, Aerial torpedo experts around the world believed torpedo attacks against ships required water to be at least 75 feet deep. The Toronto Harbor had a depth of 33 feet, and the British were able to innovate their methods to compensate for this. The British attached wires to each torpedo's nose, holding it up as it fell to the water. This produced something like a belly flop instead of a dive. This also allowed them to drop into the water as shallow as 22 feet. By the way, if you'd like to know more about this rather incredible battle, guess what? Over at Kings and Generals, they have a fully 3D rendered video on it. The animation is incredible. And yours truly wrote the script for it. So please, go check out the Battle of Taranto. You will definitely not be disappointed. I promise. Now, why am I bringing up this event that occurred in the Mediterranean Sea from November of 1940? Well, that is because it had an impact on the IGN and the plans for the Pearl Harbor attack. Within days of the Toronto attack, one Lieutenant Takashi Natio, an assistant air attaché at the Japanese embassy in Berlin, was sent to Taranto to investigate. This was followed up by a larger Japanese military delegation in the spring, which made an extensive report. The findings were reported to Captain Minori Genda, who was one of the main people in charge of creating the Pearl Harbor plans. Another man who was reported to was Captain Mitsuo Fuchida, who would lead the attack on Pearl Harbor. Now, the Japanese did not use the same spooled wire technique that the British had at Taranto for their aerial torpedoes. They had been working on shallow water solutions for their torpedoes going back to the early 1930s. 
They came up with the Type 91 aerial torpedo, and in 1936, they figured out that if they attached breakaway wooden fins to it, it would achieve aerial stability, and added to this, with a breakaway wooden nose, it could soften the impact, thus allowing their torpedo to hit shallow water targets, such as those in harbors. Thus, the Taranto attack did not impact the Japanese technical designs for shallow water torpedoes. They had solved that already, though it is certainly true the IGN officers in Italy pelted the Italian officers with questions about the Taranto operation and the way the British had managed to pull it off. The IGN officers most likely were interested in all aspects of how the British managed to get their torpedoes to work, so they would know how the Allies might defend against their own shallow water torpedoes. Now Yamamoto is not the first person to think of attacking the American naval base at Pearl Harbor. As early as 1927, war games at the Japanese Naval War College included an examination of a carrier raid against Pearl Harbor. Yamamoto the following year lectured on the same subject at said college, yet the actual idea of the attack was almost universally opposed because of, well, how risky it was. After the Toronto attack, Yamamoto wrote to his fellow admiral and friend, stating that he had decided to launch the Pearl Harbor attack, and this was in December of 1940. For Yamamoto, it seems it gave him the confidence such an attack could work, and it helped win over his case when he presented the plans to the Japanese leadership. Yamamoto is a fascinating character, and will play one of the most pivotal roles during the Pacific War. Now back to the proposals. Proposal A was favored by the IGA and was communicated to the United States on November the 7th. It stated the army was willing to confine itself to North China and Mongolia for a fixed period of time amongst withdrawing troops from other areas. However, the U.S. codebreakers had deciphered some of Japan's diplomatic codes at this point, and they knew that there was a second proposal, so they rejected and stalled Proposal A until November the 14th. On November the 20th, Proposal B was communicated to the United States, which offered to withdraw Japanese forces from southern Indochina if the U.S. agreed to stop aiding Chiang Kai-shek restore relations prior to the freezing of Japanese assets, provide Japan with a required quantity of oil, and assist Japan in acquiring materials from the Dutch East Indies. The deadline for Proposal B was set to be at midnight of November the 30th. The United States was about to make a counteroffer to the plan which would have included a monthly supply of fuel for civilian use. However, President Roosevelt received a leak of Japan's war plans and news that Japanese troop ships were on their way to Indochina at that time. Thus, he decided that Japan was not being sincere in their negotiations and he instructed Secretary Hull to drop the counterproposal. By November the 26th, the White House, State, Navy, and War Departments, knew Japan was moving for an invasion of Thailand, and that the deadline of November the 29th was because after that point, 
things were going to automatically happen. The Americans were convinced that war would commence days afterwards and probably with a surprise attack. Thus, the United States sent the famous Hull Note to Japan on November the 26th, which demanded Japan withdrew all military, naval, air, and police forces from China and Indochina, but notably left China undefined. It also did not give a clear deadline for troop withdrawal. It is quite a long document with quite a few ambiguities to it. The most important thing to note is that the whole note was taken by Hideki Tojo and misrepresented to the cabinet and the emperor on purpose. Tojo first called it a ultimatum to Japan, and it truly wasn't. Tojo knew this, and it was marked tentative and lacked a time limit for acceptance or rejection. Tojo also told his cabinet the whole note demanded the withdrawal of Japanese forces from all of China, instead of just the parts it occupied since war broke out in 1937. But this was not the case. President of the Privy Council, Hara, questioned Tojo and the other military chiefs during this meeting. Throughout the questioning process, Tojo and those supporting the war gave very ambiguous answers. Nonetheless, to conclude the meeting, Hera ended by stating of the Hull proposal, quote, If we're to give in to the United States, then we would not only give up the fruits of the Sino-Japanese War and the Russo-Japanese War, but also abandon the results of the Manchurian incident. There is no way we could endure this, it is clear that the existence of our empire is threatened, that the great achievements of the Emperor Meiji would all come to naught, and that there is nothing else we can do. Emperor Hirohito remained silent, whereas Tojo stated, Once His Majesty decides to commence hostilities, we will all strive to meet our obligations to him. Bring the government and the military ever closer together. Resolve that the nation, united, will go on to victory. Make an all-out effort to achieve our war aims and set His Majesty's mind at ease. I now adjourn the meeting. In Sugiyama's meeting minutes, he noted that the Emperor, quote, the emperor nodded in agreement to each explanation that was made and displayed not even the slightest anxiety. He seemed to be in a good mood. We were filled with awe. The war was officially coming. The dice was cast. I would like to take this time to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And if after all that you are still hungry for some history related content, why don't you go check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel at YouTube. It would mean a lot to me. I would like you to join us next time for the first official episode of the Pacific War Podcast week by week.
and I hope these prelude episodes were not too painful for all of you, as the content is going to dramatically change from this point on. Stating all of that, the next episode is one that will live in infamy, that being the attack on Pearl Harbor. Join us next week.